Listen as I read to you 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 23. The Word of God says this. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Pray with me. Lord God, there are great, great things for us to learn here today. I pray that you will focus us and open our hearts to your word. Be magnified, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. You know, it's one thing to have a plan. It's another to execute that plan. It's one thing to lay out a beautiful blueprint. It's another to build the building. Over my past three sermons, that's not last week, but three in October, I share with you the blueprint of God's eternal plan. Before there was time, the persons of the one true God entered into an agreement to accomplish God's eternal plan of redemption. The Father elects a people to redemption and sends the Son. The Son willingly is sent by the Father and accomplishes the redemption of his elect. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit aids the Son, applies redemption to the elect, and seals them to the Lord for eternity. And this all is to the glory of God. This plan is perfect, and it will not fail, not one little bit, in any form. That's what I said to you over three weeks. Does that sound about right? Okay, good. There you go. I I could have saved you guys a lot of time. Now, here's the question. How are we going to see this plan of God accomplished? And now I'm going to let you in on what we're going to do over the next several weeks. We're going to look at vital points in biblical history in which God moves the world toward its purpose. We'll watch the unfolding of some of the key biblical covenants, and in doing so, we'll get a look at the big picture of the perfect plan of God. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 1. And in our study for today, we're going to look at Genesis 1 through 3 to see the covenant that God made with Adam. Here we'll begin to see the execution of that perfect plan of God in time. Now, real quick, does this sound like a super dull theological study that will shut down your brain? Thank you. Look, think about it this way. If, if, if this sounds all lofty or whatever, here's what we're going to do. Over the next two months, we're going to tell the big story of the Bible. We're going to make sure that over the next several weeks, all of us get a big picture perspective on exactly what God promised and how he brought it to pass over the history of mankind. We're going to see the promise of a Savior and the fulfillment of that promise. We're going to see, as the next two months unfold, the reason that the anticipation of the coming of Jesus and his arrival on our first Christmas is a glorious thing. So yes, I've just let you know, we are still in the Christmas series, and it's really early. I feel like Walmart. (laughs) So today... Let's look at the beginning. We're going to see the perfect setting for the first man. We're going to see his covenant relationship with God, his failure to keep God's command, and the promise of future grace. So if you're writing points, there's just kind of section headings here at this point. The first one is the setting of the Adamic 
covenant. If you don't want to write Adamic, you can write the covenant with Adam. The setting of the Adamic covenant. Look at Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I think it's funny, by the way. I had zero to do with planning what our doctrine lesson would be today. And here's the Lord giving us that lesson as then we study creation. In the three previous sermons that I gave you, we looked into a time before time, a promise that was made before the beginning. Now we get to see the beginning. And in the beginning, God took action. God, who exists outside of time, unbound by any of our limitations, God, who is eternal, acted. God made the heavens and God made the earth. And all that is has been created by God. Thus, all that exists belongs to God. It's God's. It's His. He made it. He didn't make it from substance that already existed before. He didn't make it from somebody else's stuff. By His infinite might, God spoke and made the world. Over the six days of creation, God formed earth, the heavens, the sea, the mountains, the birds, the fish, the plants, the animals. God set the stars in the sky and put the sun and moon on their courses. And in everything he made, he delighted. Every day, God declared his creation good. The first five days of creation, there's a very simple rhythm to the work of God. The Lord spoke, a thing came into being, God said it was good, and there was evening and morning of the numbered day. But on the sixth day, the rhythm's broken. God does something that is greater than all the creation thus far. Down in verse 26 of Genesis 1, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So after God made land and sea, plants and animals, God slowed the rhythm of creation. God spoke among the persons of the Holy Trinity, the three persons of the one true God. And God declared his intent to fashion the crown jewel of creation. God would create humanity, mankind, the greatest of his creation. Now it's worth noticing right here that humanity, both male and female, is created in God's image. This tells us that there is no disparity in value. Men and women are both of incredible worth as creations in the image of God. But what does it mean that humanity exists in the image of God? Both our duty and our worth are found right here. An image has a job to do, a work to perform. Think of an image like a picture, like a photograph. It's got a job to do. A picture exists to display for those who see it something of the truth of what it depicts. So 
Let's ask somebody who's under the age of, I don't know, 18. Think about this with me. A picture of a car is supposed to look like what? What would you guess? Oh, good whispering. Thank you. Thank you. A car. If a picture of a car does not look like a car, what is it not? A picture of a car. A, a, a sculpture of a horse ought to depict what? A horse. And there should be something of the essence of horsiness that comes across when one sees that image, that work of art. With me? A human being is created in the image of God. And we have a duty, we have a responsibility, a privilege of displaying the attributes and the character of God for creation to see and to admire. Being made in God's image means something even more than that. Think in terms of a king and his kingdom. The image of the king in the land of his kingdom indicates to his subjects that the king is the true ruler of the land. So a a statue of the king in a town far away from the capital city is there to remind those who live in the town that even if they don't see the king in their streets on a daily basis, they're still subject to the king's authority. When God said he made mankind in his image, he gave humanity the responsibility to display God's character, God's perfection, and God charged the people with being his image to display his kingship. Humanity has the responsibility to rule as regents in the world that God made. We're not the king. You are not the king. But we are to show the world that the king rules as we order creation in accord with God's will. Now, if that whole ruling and reigning stuff sounds strange to you, look at what God told the first couple. They were to be fruitful, they were to multiply, they were to fill the earth, they were to subdue it. They were to have dominion over all creation. They were to rule, to reign as images of the king. They were to spread the glory of the Lord over all of creation. In Genesis 1.31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. When God made the light and the dark, and ordered the sun, the moon, and the stars, God said it was good. When God made the sky and the seas, the birds and the fish, God said it was good. When God made the land and the trees and the animals, God said it was good. But when God made humanity in his image, when God gave mankind dominion over his creation to fill it and to rule it, God said this was very good. One might even translate it super good. Creation and its ordering was perfect. So God rested, ceasing from the labor of creating, and he called the seventh day holy. So Genesis 1 gave us a lightning-fast flyover of creation. Chapter 2 takes more time to focus us on the creation of man and helps us better understand the relationship that existed between God and the first man, Adam. Genesis chapter 2, 
For some of you on your phones, you've got to open the next chapter now. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man out of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So here we get a closer look at the creation of the first human being. The man is fashioned in a different way than the rest of creation had been. We don't see the Lord simply say, let there be with Adam. Instead, we see that the Lord took time to sculpt the man and breathe into his nostrils the breath of life. Verses 8 and 9 And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord, uh, out of the, out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant in sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God made the man, and then the Lord planted and formed a garden in Eden. This is a good place. Right? God planted and caused to grow all kinds of trees bearing fruit in this garden. And the scripture sets our focus on two of the trees. One's the tree of life. The other's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I'll simply say at this point that, spoiler alert, they're going to be important. From verses 10 to 14, God describes to us a bit of the landscape. Rivers flow out of Eden. Now, just as a little factoid here, rivers do not tend to flow uphill. So, we can assume that Eden is a rather high place, maybe a hilltop or even a mountaintop. As the rivers flow, they flow through rich lands. Ezekiel 20.13 makes reference to the garden, particularly being a place of many precious gems and great beauty. Then verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. If you are a note taker, highlighter in your Bible, highlight the words work and keep. Once God made the man, he made the garden. Now he places the man in the garden with a task. Adam's job is to work and keep the garden. Now, pause with me for a second. We're going to examine the whole setting. Adam is made by God in God's image. The Lord has given Adam dominion over all the creatures on earth and has commissioned Adam to fill the earth and subdue it. God didn't make a, only, just make a world. He made a world that was super good and he specifically made a glorious garden habitat for Adam to start serving in. So far, all is good. Nothing's lacking. Man has access to the presence of God, to food, to work, to great beauty. Now, Adam's playing a couple roles here that you should identify. Maybe you've not thought about this before. Adam plays the role of of a king serving under the true king of kings. How do we know? Adam has been made in the image of God, and he's been given dominion over the rest of creation. Adam also has a priestly role. The garden and the words that are used to describe the garden bring the Bible reader's mind to the tabernacle or to the temple. Most temples were set up on high places. The garden was too. 
The temple was full of beautiful treasures. The garden was too. The temple was to be a place of God's unique presence. The garden was too. And the priests of God were charged with guarding and keeping the temple. And it's the same two Hebrew words that are used here when it says that Adam was put in the garden to tend and keep it. So Adam, the first man, is set on the earth as a priest king sent to have dominion and glorify the Lord. He has a unique and thus far perfect relationship with God the Creator. That's the setting. Still awake? Well, let's look at the test of the Adamic covenant. Our second point is the test of the Adamic covenant. Verse 16 and 17 say, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. That's a pretty familiar passage, and it gives us the first prohibition in the Word of God. While Adam is given by God the freedom to eat the fruit of any tree in the garden, he's forbidden to take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if Adam violates this simple command, this tiny prohibition, he'll die. Here we begin to see what we call the Adamic covenant. Some people call this the covenant of works. I think Marcel asked me about the covenant of works when I first started talking covenants with you guys. Adam, in a relationship with God, is commanded by the Lord not to eat of just one particular tree. If Adam obeys, the obvious result is going to be life and blessing. If Adam disobeys, the result is going to be the curse of death. And the presumption here is that for a short season, Adam is going to have the ability either to fail or to succeed in this task of not eating of the tree that brings death. You would assume if Adam obeys God, if he only chooses the tree of life and not the tree of death, eventually Adam will have passed the test and God is going to just remove the possibility of failure and Adam and his offspring will live forever with God in perfect joy and perfect peace. And so the point here is in this covenant, obedience leads to life, disobedience leads to death. That's why they call it the covenant of works. Do good and live, do bad and die. Now remember, a covenant is a kind of relationship-based agreement, a binding relationship-based agreement. And there's relationship between God and Adam. God is Lord, God is creator, thus God has every right to bind Adam to God's will. There's a blessing to be gained, there's a sanction to be avoided. And as we study scripture, we're going to see that Adam stands before God, not only as his own man, but Adam stands before God as a representative of all humanity to come. Since all people come out of Adam, how Adam does his job in relating to God is going to be seen as true, not only of Adam, but of every single person descended from Adam. Adam, 
at this time in history, though one man, he is all of humanity. And the decisions Adam makes to follow God or rebel against God are going to be applied as the decisions of all humanity. If Adam chooses life, humanity, all humanity is going to live. If Adam chooses rebellion and death, humanity, all of humanity will die. Now, let's illustrate this with Star Trek just to make sure that Ben is tracking with us. I want you guys to imagine. You guys have your Star Trek, you know, imaginations ready to go, right? I want you to imagine that the ship is being held in space by a powerful alien force. And the alien makes a demand. The alien says to the ship, turn back. Over the communications channel, the alien asks this question. Will you comply or will you be destroyed? And at that moment, James T. Kirk, as captain of the Millennium Falcon. (laughs) I kid, I kid, it's the Enterprise. (laughs) That was good. He's going to speak an answer over the communications channel. Now, Kirk's answer is not merely applicable to himself. Kirk's answer represents the will of the Enterprise and everybody on board. It does not matter if Dr. McCoy in the sick bay likes the decision or thinks he would have done it differently. Kirk has the authority. Kirk is the spokesman for the ship. Kirk's decision is the decision of the ship. You see the parallel here? The doctrine that we're hinting at here is that of Adam's federal headship. Adam is our representative. His decision binds all of humanity. At this point in the biblical narrative, Eve hasn't even been created yet. So this covenant responsibility is squarely on the shoulders of Adam and Adam alone. Now, some of you immediately are thinking, well, that's just not fair. Realize something here for a second. Adam is, without question, a better representative for humanity than any of us could possibly be. You know why? Adam lived in a perfect environment. We don't. Have you ever noticed that the world we live in is kind of messy? That means you would be a worse representative for humanity than Adam. Adam was actually capable of perfect obedience. You and I have never been capable of perfect obedience. Adam was, to use a simple way of speaking, our best shot to make it to God's favor through obedience and works. If anybody was going to obey, Adam would have. Now move on. Verse 18 For the first time in Scripture, God says a thing is not good. It's not good for the man to be alone. He needs a helper so that he can accomplish the mission God's given him. So in verse 19, God parades all the animals by Adam so that Adam can name them. And Adam shows that he has dominion over the animals because he has the authority to give them their names. But among the animal kingdom, no animal is fit to be Adam's helper 
Then God puts the man into a deep sleep, takes one of his ribs, and by the power of the Almighty, God fashions for Adam a helpmate suitable for the task. God creates the first woman. And now we see how Adam and his wife actually can be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and exercise dominion over creation in the name of the Lord. We see marriage, the creation, the invention of the family right here in the beginning. And we see one more role for Adam, maybe. We saw him as a king. He has dominion as the regent for God over the world. We saw his priestly role, tending and keeping the garden, which is itself like a temple. Can you imagine that maybe there's a prophetic role in Adam's life too? God gave a command, one command. God gave one restriction. Adam is bound to that agreement. Life or death will result. Adam, like a prophet of old, probably has the responsibility to communicate the terms of this agreement to his bride and to any of the children that will come. So here humanity stands at a great point of testing. The agreement is clear. The terms are not questionable. Choose to obey the command. Choose the tree of life and live. Choose to disobey God. Choose the other tree and bring death. And the choice that Adam makes will actually be the choice of all humanity. He represents us all in a formally, a formal and legally binding sense. Just guess. How do you suppose he does? Turn to Genesis 3. Point 3. The violation of the Adamic covenant. 1 through 6. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. This is one of the most familiar passages of all the Bible, right? The devil's in the garden. He speaks with the woman. He deceives the woman. She eats of the forbidden tree. She hands the fruit to her husband and her aunt. In violation of the one rule, the one restriction, in violation of the single test of the covenant with Adam, the man ate. Adam, with full knowledge of what he was doing, rebelled against the rule of Almighty God. And since Adam is our federal head, our true representative, in that moment, all of humanity rebelled against God. Now, is what Adam did really, Travis, counted to all of his descendants? Am I counted guilty because of Adam? 
Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. When Adam sinned, all sinned. Do you get it? Our leader chose rebellion, therefore we chose rebellion, and this rebellion broke the world. You know the rest of the story in Genesis 3, don't you? Adam and Eve saw that they were naked, they were exposed, they were defenseless. Verses 8 to 10, the man tries to hide from God, but to no avail. For the first time in human experience, fear and shame and a desire to avoid the gaze of God is present in the human experience. Verses 11 to 14, the Lord confronts the man, gives him the opportunity to confess his failure. Come clean. And the man blames the woman, who in turn blames the serpent. And central to the study we're doing today, Adam representing all of humanity, has violated the terms of the covenant. Adam and all humanity have failed to live up to the standard that God set. Adam and all humanity have earned death. Now here's another question. Does Scripture speak of this moment as a covenant violation just for your theology? Yeah, it does. Hosea 6 verse 7 says, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Isaiah 24 verse 5 says, The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the law, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. So yes, humanity has violated the terms of the first covenant, the Adamic covenant. In Adam, we failed to obey. We failed to earn our way to God's favor. We earned death. And one would assume, if you were reading the story for the first time, that what's about to happen is God will carry out the sentence that is clearly present in the terms of the covenant. We assume God's going to kill Adam on the spot and humanity will just be dead forever. But, take your brains back to the month of October. What do we know about God's plan of redemption? God intends to save a people for himself. How can this all come to pass? Is there something more? And the fourth point, the last one for this morning, is the hope promised. Look at verses 14 to 19. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now pay attention here. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Major verse right there. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he will rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For Out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the Lord gives us here the consequences of mankind's rebellion. 
The serpent's going to be crushed. The woman is going to experience pain in childbirth. The man will find it difficult to work the soil and humanity is going to experience death. The consequence of our rebellion against God in the garden, it's all the pain, all the sorrow, all the hurt, all the evil mankind experiences over all the centuries. Death, not merely physical death, but spiritual death, is the highest consequence of rebelling against God. And while death is, physical death is the separation of your soul from your body, spiritual death is the removal of the soul of a person from the presence of the favor of God. Everyone who truly spiritually dies will spend forever under the righteous judgment of God. But in those words of judgment from God. It's the pronouncement of hope. The man experienced spiritual death in his separation from God's favor, but while the man will physically die, he doesn't instantly physically die. While the woman will experience pain and hardship in childbearing, God is going to allow children to be born. The human race is going to live. And in the promise of the crushing of the snake is the promise of somebody to come, born of the woman, who will be the snake crusher. And this is the first hint that God is promising to send somebody into the world who will rightly carry out God's eternal plan of redemption. God is going to send a rescuer into the world to stomp the devil and redeem God's people. No, God is not here making the covenant of grace, but he is surely promising that it's on its way. As we watch Genesis 3 close, I think we see a practical depiction of the hope God promises. Look at 20 to 23. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So verse 20, the man gives his wife her name. He calls her Eve, indicating that she will be the mother of the entire human race. That Adam names Eve indicates the fact that she is also under his headship, under his authority, because he has the right to name her. But it indicates something bigger. Adam believes the promise God made. Adam believes, not that they're going to die right now, though death will come, he believes that his wife will birth children. Adam believes that a rescuer will come through the woman's offspring. Adam believes the promise of hope from God. Then in verse 21, what does God do? God covers 
the man and the woman in animal skins. He covers their sin. He covers their shame. I believe God here made the very first animal sacrifice because animals don't tend to just take off their skins. And this blood sacrifice is the first hint of how the one to come will bring about the hope that God has been promising. Verses 22 and 23, God puts the man and the woman out of the garden. God makes it impossible for the man to find life under the Adamic covenant, the covenant of works. He can't do it now. While God's standard for humanity is still perfection, because of the man's failure, Adam can never achieve perfection through his own action. The way to the tree of life has been blocked. Should Adam or any of his offspring attempt to gain life by means of their own personal effort, should they try to walk in and take the fruit of the tree of life, they will be destroyed. While Adam could not work his way to God through obedience in the Adamic covenant, I do personally believe Adam and Eve, by trusting in the promise of God, I think they have forgiveness by grace through faith in the promised one to come. And this points us to the rest of the true divine story that's about to unfold. From the Adamic covenant, we learn that humanity was given one chance to live up to God's standard and gain eternal life. Humanity failed. Never again will any of us be able to obey enough, to be good enough, to do right enough to avoid the death penalty. And we will be utterly hopeless if we continue under the representation of Adam. Even if Adam was personally forgiven, his choice as our federal head, as our leader, as our captain, brings destruction to all humanity. But God has an eternal plan that's bigger than Adam. God has an eternal plan that cannot ever fail because God can't fail at anything God does. God will redeem for himself a people out of fallen humanity. How? We get a hint of it here, but it's a massive promise. God will send somebody into the world who will crush the devil and will so- and somehow Trusting in the one to come, having faith in the one to come, believing the promise of the one to come, having faith and not through your own personal goodness is what will bring people under the covering, sheltering grace of Almighty God. In the garden, God promised a Savior. In the garden, God promised He would send Jesus. Jesus is God the Son, sent by God the Father. Jesus will Endure the bite of the serpent, but Jesus will be utterly victorious. Jesus will become the second Adam, the greater representative for humanity. Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, will save people from their sins for God. While the demand of the covenant with Adam is still in force, God still says, be perfect. The ability of any one of us to be perfect and live is gone. We sinned in Adam. We sin on our own. 
The way to the tree of life is blocked and none of us can get there by good works. But Jesus came. Jesus came born of woman, born under the requirement of perfection and lived out total perfection for us. He died to pay the price that we deserve to pay. He rose showing that the payment was made in full. And now we have to make a choice. You can't make your own way to God. Honestly, you don't even get a chance to try. What you get to choose is your representative. Either your life is represented by Adam and his actions or Jesus and his actions. At the start, by default, you're already in Adam. If you remain in Adam, you die forever. Because if you remain in Adam, you receive the fruit of the tree that brings death. But if you'll come to Jesus Christ in faith, if you'll believe God for grace, Jesus becomes your representative. Jesus' actions, his perfection, it's counted to your account. So come to Jesus and you'll find yourself alive and forgiven and granted the tree of life. Romans 5, 18 and 19 say this. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made sinners righteous. If you don't know Jesus, I invite you. Stop trying to walk your way to God. You can't do it. Put all your hope for all your eternity, for all your soul in Jesus. Yield your life to him and be saved. If you want to know more about that, I would love to talk with you about it afterward. Come find me. Let's talk. Come talk to an elder. Come talk to any Christian in the room. And we would love to help you know the Jesus who represents all who come to him by grace through faith. Let's pray. Lord God, I am so, so grateful for your word. For the promises that you've made. For the promise you will keep. Give us life and hope in Jesus as we acknowledge that we have fallen in Adam. And even as this season progresses, as all of a sudden here and before we know it, it'll be Christmassy stuff going on. Help us to love the fact that the one you promised came. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.